James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may have not so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to open our time. Father, I thank you that you are a God who has spoken, who used your Holy Spirit to inspire earthly authors to write down your words, that you've preserved them so that we can read them now. And I ask as we look to your word, that your spirit would speak to us, our hearts might be strengthened in you, and we might see more of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, this week I had to f- figure out, of all the places in the Bible, where is it that I would preach from? And there was a, a lot of d- different thoughts that went through my head. I've been reading through the book of Acts, and I thought, oh, maybe there's something in Acts. And I looked at Hebrews. There's so many good things in Hebrews. And that starts to become the problem when you're, you're trying to figure out where will I preach from, is that all of God's Bible is inspired, and all of it will preach but I truly believe that God also tries to lead preachers, if we're willing to follow, to proclaim from his word for his people. And so I came to James chapter 5, and it started sounding familiar with where we're at right now. We're entering into month four of a pandemic response that none of us has ever seen in our lifetime. I can say that confidently that, that our nation has never quite seen a pandemic and a response before like it has at this moment. And as we've entered month four, we're now just solidly in the phase of waiting. Like early on in March, there was the adrenaline because you had to shift everything and people were working from home all of a sudden and schools were trying to figure out how to get e-learning set up. Here at the church, I know for us, it was just a scramble to figure out, okay, what do we do now with the church that can't meet in its building? And so the month of March just kind of went by in a flash. It was just that initial adrenaline of figuring out what does it look like to work and to live and to exist in this time. But then as the weeks rolled on into months, the adrenaline starts to wear off and you start to get to that phrase we've all heard, the new normal, and life looks different. But here we are now in July, but we're still waiting. Right? Illinois would say we're in phase four, there's still a phase five, but it's not here yet, we've gotta wait for that. Schools are trying to figure out, are we gonna do e-learning, we're gonna do education in person, we don't quite know yet, let's just have to wait and see on that. Many employers are saying, yeah, you can start coming back into the office, but Maybe keep working from home. We'll we'll wait and see a little bit longer. Month four of a pandemic, as it turns out, is the time when you're just caught waiting. And my fear is that in the midst of this time, we as a church would not have a distinctly Christian response to waiting. 
that the way that we wait and respond to this time would look just a lot like how everyone else is waiting and responding in this time. My fear is that in a time of uncertainty, our witness might not proclaim the foundation of the rock that our lives are built on, but that our foundation might look like it's built on sand like everybody else. So as we come to to James chapter 5, James writes for his readers to know how to wait. Because the problem is, is that waiting can elicit two wrong responses. When you wait, you can do it wrong in a couple of different ways. First, you can grow impatient. As you wait for something to happen, as you wait for a pandemic to end, or you wait for a job promotion, or you wait to get test results back, or you wait to graduate, whatever it is, as you wait, you can grow impatient. And when you do, you start to get angry, you start to grow bitter, and you start to just ask, well, why isn't this just happening? Or why isn't this season ending? Why am I still just stuck? And that waiting can just turn into impatience, which then turns into bitterness, which then becomes anger. Secondly, though, there's another way to respond that's more subtle, but perhaps even more dangerous. And that is that when you're waiting, you can begin to shift your patience to something else. Where you're still going to be patient and you're still going to wait, but your hope is now in something else to deliver you. And if anything, I think it's that second response to waiting that we're more at risk for in the church. Not necessarily just that we would grow impatient in times of struggle, but that we would start to put our hope and our trust in something other than Christ to deliver us. And as soon as we do that, our response to adversity and our response to the issue of this time and even to this pandemic will start to look a lot like the response that everyone else will have. And so I fear that for our church, that as we wait, that as we respond, that it wouldn't look like people whose hope is built on Christ. Our passage today is written to Christians in a crisis. And from what we can tell in James, it seems that it's written to poor Christians who are being persecuted by rich individuals. And it's very likely that those who were poor had debts or loans to these rich individuals, and and those who were rich were holding it hostage over their head. However, What James writes isn't just for people in that particular situation, but what he writes here is for Christians who are facing various kinds of trials, struggles, and adversities. And so very much applies to us today. And James has one overarching exhortation in this passage. Be patient. That's his command in two words for this entire passage that we just read. Whenever you face these trials, be patient patient. His instruction is so important that he says it twice, first in verse 7 and then again in verse 8, be patient. He doesn't give it as a suggestion or here's just a, a good idea maybe to think about. No, this is an exhortation. How does the Christian respond to suffering and trials and adversity that comes along? With patience. But it's very important to see what kind of patience. And he illustrates this exhortation with an image that would have been familiar to his readers, but is still very much understandable for us today. He says, look at the farmer. Now, a good farmer is by no means a lazy person. A good farmer is not a sluggard. 
who just sits around waiting for the crop to come in. A good farmer is a hard worker, someone who goes out and tills the soil and prepares his fields, plants a crop, makes sure that it gets adequate water and fertilization, makes sure that any pests or animals stay out so that he'll get the full yield from his crop. But at the end of the day, a good farmer also has to employ a great deal of patience. Because for everything that a farmer can do to try to get a bigger crop or a better crop or a bigger yield, they cannot get more out of the ground than the soil and the season will allow. So that means that you have to plant your crop at the right time, but then you just have to wait. Because as the season rolls on, those plants will have time to get sunlight, and they'll have time to get water, They'll have time to grow. And if you try to cut that process off too early, then you're not going to get what you want. And so you just simply have to wait. So for all the work that the farmer can put in, they still just have to sit and wait for their crop to come up in the field. So James says, look at the farmer. They know how to read the seasons, how to wait, not just for the one rain, but wait till you get both seasons of rain. They know how to wait for the full growth cycle of that plant so that when they take the fruit from their field, they know that they got every last bit out they possibly could. Likewise, as Christians, we must employ patience. But we don't just have to sit around. Just like the farmer might work the soil and protect the crop. There are things that we can do even in the midst of waiting that will help develop and engage our patience. So James gives two imperatives, two exhortations for how to be patient, two ways that we can foster this in our life. He says, be patient. Establish your heart. That's his first imperative. Establish your heart. This word in the New Testament when it's used can also mean strengthen, to build up, to fortify. He says, establish your heart when you wait. What does it look like to establish our heart? Like I said, this is used all throughout the New Testament, especially in the epistles, as men are writing to the churches all over the world. We see this phrase come up over and over again, that that you might be strengthened, that your heart might be strengthened, that you might be built up, that you might be established. James uses the same language. Establish, strengthen, build up your heart to be patient. When we see this strengthening or this establishing, there's really just two parties that usually does it. First, God is the one to strengthen. Paul writes several times in his epistles that it is the God and Jesus Christ, his son, who strengthens us, who builds us up, who establishes us. But then also, Paul and other New Testament writers write and say, I said these things so that you might be strengthened. I said these things so that you might strengthen or establish others. So we see that God is often the one who will strengthen, but also it's other believers who will often strengthen us. And conversely, we as believers often will strengthen others. And so James' first encouragement to us, he says, be patient first by strengthening your heart by being encouraged by your brothers and sisters around you, by being a source of encouragement to those around you, by reading God's word so that he might build you up, might strengthen you. In times of waiting, when we have to employ patience, it can get really easy 
to just focus a lot on the situation that we want to change. And we start thinking about all the scenarios of, of well, if maybe just this would happen, then, then I can see the change I want. Or if I can just do a couple of these things, or if I can have this conversation, I can kind of move the process along. But James's first command is, when you have to be patient, first establish your heart. Strengthen it in the work of God. And notice what he says, verse 8, establish your heart for the day of the Lord is at hand. It says that phrase that the day of the Lord is at hand. Meaning not just that Jesus is about to come back, but that his kingdom already is quite near. Ever since John the Baptist, we've been hearing that the kingdom of God is come. That ever since Jesus arrived on earth, he's inaugurated a heavenly kingdom that will conquer all the forces of darkness. That kingdom isn't just going to return at some point in the future. Already that kingdom has established its foothold when Christ came to earth, died on a cross, came back to life, and then founded his church. And so we live in a time where the coming of the Lord is at hand meaning not just that he will return, but that he has already come and inaugurated and established his kingdom. And knowing that, knowing that the day of the Lord is here, we can be strengthened and built up in our hearts. And so in strengthening this establishing of the heart, when done right, we can be strengthened by God by looking to his word and what he says. We can be strengthened by others as we're around Christian brothers and sisters and they can build us up and remind us of the gospel. And we can strengthen others by doing the same for them. But when it goes wrong, what happens is that we start fighting with each other. So notice he gives that warning, do not grumble about each other. And this calls back to chapter 4, where he's already addressed Christians who are fighting and quarreling amongst themselves. And he comes back and he once again says, don't quarrel and fight amongst yourselves. Don't grumble with one another. We have to ask the question, well, why is that the opposite of this establishing of the heart that he's talking about? In chapter 4, he reveals that the reason that we end up quarreling and fighting as Christian brothers and sisters is because our passions are at war within us. And what's happening is that as we're in a time of adversity or as we're in a time of waiting, our passions and our desires begin to shift. Where once we desired Christ, where once we longed to see his kingdom built on this earth, we're now longing for something else. And so where once we had unity with Christians, brothers and sisters, because we all desired the kingdom of Christ, we now have any number of desires and passions. And they're going to be in competition with one another. And our brothers and sisters are no longer unified with us in Christ. And we're no longer unified with them because we've started to chase after other things. And so rather than building one another up, rather than encouraging each other with the gospel of Christ, we just start bickering. We start quarreling. The word James uses is grumbling. Reminds us of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness. Grumbling. Because they always wanted something that God wasn't giving them. They always felt that they had a better idea of what it is they needed than God. And so they just grumbled and complained that they weren't getting whatever it was they wanted. 
And so this establishing of the heart, it goes wrong when we allow our passions to shift. When we no longer desire Christ, when we no longer taste and see of his goodness, but have an appetite for something more worldly, more selfish. So like I said, my my current concern for us as a church is that our patience will shift from the hope of Christ. My concern is that our patience will be in a vaccine or in economic restoration or in resuming normal life or that our patience will be in seeing uh, the right politicians put into office or that our patience will be in us getting whatever it is we think will make us happy and comfortable once again. While some of those things are good things, while we can pray for a vaccine, while we can hope for the restoration of livelihoods, if that is our greatest hope, then we've lost our direction. So my hope is that even in the midst of trial and even in the midst of waiting for so many different things, that our patience still rests on the coming day of the Lord. And we can pray for a vaccine, but we understand that even when a virus is eradicated, the disease of sin still very much holds grip on this world. That even if we can do away with illness or economic inequality or injustice within our social system, sin still infects this world. And we will never see a complete restoration until Christ returns to once for all put an end. Even when sicknesses go away, this creation still groans under the weight of sin as it waits for redemption from God. So my hope is, is as we're waiting, that we still keep ourselves firmly rooted built upon the hope of Christ and his work, that that's our foundation. That we understand that whatever happens in this world, there will be good things, there will be bad things, but ultimately we need Christ. We need his kingdom to see all this made right. And that nothing short of Christ will fix our world. Let that be our hope in this time and in any time. So James first says, when we are patient, we must establish our heart. But then his second command is just consider the example of our forerunners. Consider the example of the prophets who endured, who suffered. Though they came speaking in the name of the Lord, they faced adversity. They faced persecution. And notice he says, he acknowledges the prophets speaking in the name of the Lord. They were not silent about injustices. They didn't just wait around for God to return. They still boldly proclaimed God's word of what was right and what is righteous. But they were met with opposition. They were met with disdain. But there were still prophets who were faithful to endure. And he gives one specific example. And he says, you have heard of Job. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, Job is one of the longer books, over 40 chapters. Job was a righteous man. He was a servant of God. 
he made sure to offer sacrifice, not just for himself, but his children as well, so that if any in his family might profane God, he would make it right with sacrifice. He sought God's will and to do what was right before God's eyes. And yet, God allowed Job to be tested by Satan. It's one of the more peculiar books in the Old Testament because we actually get to see a scene of what's going on in the throne room. As Satan approaches God and they have a conversation about Job, this man on earth who is so righteous. And God does allow Job to then be tested. And what happens is that Job loses virtually everything. His children, his wealth, his riches, his own physical well-being, he loses it all. And for a good while, Job endures well. But even Job falters. Even he begins to just say, I, I wish I wasn't born. All of this that has come up against me is, is just too much to handle. And as his, Job and his friends go through, they're, they're trying to figure out what, what was it that has caused this calamity in Job's life? Why is he facing such trouble? And his friends give several different explanations not good ones. They say, well, maybe it was the sin in your life or this or that or the other. And Job even seems to begin to despair. And then God enters in and responds. And God's response to Job can be summed up just by, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Where were you when I laid up all the snow in warehouses ready to be delivered? Where were you when I created every living thing under the sun, set out its design, its purpose, and its lifespan? Where were you, Job? And God reveals, I have not only control over all of this creation, but I have a plan and a purpose for every last thing that happens in this world. But that knowledge that's going to be too high for you to understand. So don't presume that you can figure out what God's purpose and plan is in every circumstance of life. Because you weren't there when he laid it down in creation. You weren't there as he's overseen it and been sovereign over it since the beginning. God has chosen to re reveal some of the mystery of what he is doing in creation, but he has not chosen to reveal the entire mystery of what he's doing in creation. We have this guarantee that in all of God's plans, in all of God's purposes, he is compassionate and merciful. So James tells his readers, you've heard of what happened to Job, but better than that, you have seen the purposes of the Lord. You've seen how his purpose was not to destroy Job, but to reveal his glory and his goodness. After God responds to Job, Job then does repent and give this confession in Job chapter 42. He answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's response to God is, I now see that you are sovereign above all things. I understand my foolishness in trying to assume I could figure out every last thing that you were doing. 
he confesses to God, your ways are too wonderful for me to know the depths of. We're in the same situation as Job. In any of the trials or sufferings that we go through in life, we might understand the top inch of what's happening, but God has a mile of purpose beneath it. We might be able to make sense of some of the hard things that are happening in our life. We might be able to make sense of some of our struggles and and put some of the pieces together to see how God is refining us. But his ways are far too large for us to comprehend in their whole. But what we can do is reflect on him and see his continued compassion, to see his mercy, to see his goodness. And then we can rest and be patient and say, I have patience in God and his work because I know he will bring it to completion. So James gives that to his readers. In times of adversity, be patient. Establish your heart and strengthen it in the gospel of Christ. And look to those who have endured because you have seen the purposes of God in all that he has done in history. And you can know his purpose is for good in all that he's continuing to do. So that's my hope for us as a church, that we don't settle our hope on anything less than the kingdom of God. That we don't put our hope in anything other than Christ and his return to once for all put all evil away where death will be no more and we can stand together with God once again. May we not be satisfied completely and wholly until that has come to pass. May we always have a longing to see more of God and to be in closer fellowship and communion with him. And as we have to sit and be patient and be in a time of waiting, may our hope be in the one who in time of suffering and trial did not give up, but endured and had patience to suffer death on a cross. The one whose coming is at hand and at whose return every knee will bow. These things are far too wonderful for us to understand completely. But may we take what we do understand of God and his work, use it to strengthen our hearts and to be patient in every season of life, including this one. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that we would be built up in the knowledge of your compassion and your mercy May we have a greater picture today of your goodness than we did yesterday. And may our patience be rooted in a hope of the work you have said you will do. And not rooted in any work of man that we hope might happen. But only in you and your goodness. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.